God, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. This is God's word to us this morning. Pastor Dave, please come and teach us from this passage. Well, uh, <clears throat> as you can see, every time that you come on Sunday mornings, we are building a new worship center. No surprise there. You see the construction of the building happening. Well, uh, in our little construction trailer, which is just right there in the parking lot, that's where Dean Schumacher, our project manager, he works out of. And if you go into his trailer on any given day, you will see this uh, built-out desk that has the blueprints for the new worship center on it. And we say it's the blueprints. In reality, uh, there are a lot of different diagrams and information that are a part of the blueprints. It's not just one page or one sheet of paper, but it's numerous sheets of paper. And the reason for that is in the blueprints on those different pages are different instructions for the different subcontractors that are helping to build the new worship center. And so there are parts of the blueprints that only pertain to the plumbers. There are parts of the blueprints that only pertains to the electricians or those working on the HVAC systems, the security systems, or the framers. The plumbers, when they look at the blueprints, they just flip past the stuff that pertains to the framers. And the same thing with the electricians. Each of the subcontractors has very specific instructions. And as they all do their job, that's how the worship center is being built. And I share that with you because it's, I think, a, a wonderful comparison to what we have in the book of 1 Timothy. When you look at 1 Timothy, you, you find this letter from the Apostle Paul to this man, Timothy, who's the pastor of a church in Ephesus. And as he states in chapter 3, the purpose of this letter is, as verse 15 says, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. So Paul's writing this letter of 1 Timothy as really the blueprints for how the church is to function and how the different parts of the church are to come together. And so Paul recognizes, as you read the letter, that there are different people in the church with different functions. And so he writes to Timothy as the, the pastor of the church. In chapter 3, he writes to the elders. But then like in the text we have here today, you see that he very specifically has instructions for men in the church and instructions for women in the church because the household of God is made up of both men and, and women. And we said last week that it's so important to understand the broader context of men and women in the Bible, what the Bible says about men and women broadly speaking, if we're going to interpret this rightly. Because the reason why Paul gives specific instructions to men and specific instruction to women is because while both are made in the image of God, and while both have equal worth and value in the image of God, because each is made in God's image, by God's glorious design, he created us male and what? Female. These are not interchangeable. In our biology, in our physiology, we are different. But so too, as you look at the rest of the scriptures, in the roles that he has given to us, 
but also in the characteristics that are unique to men and the characteristics that are unique to women. So we shouldn't be surprised that when we come to 1 Timothy, we see, we see him giving specific instructions, first here in our text to men, and then next to, to women. But as we read all of these instructions, we must realize men and women, both made in the image of God, are equal in worth and value. Men don't bear more of the image of God than women. Women don't bear more of the image of God than men. And yet, God has made us different. God has made us distinct. And what's going to unfold in these verses all the way into chapter 3 is how those roles and those distinctions play out in the church. So it starts here in verse 8 with instructions to men. And it starts with this statement. I desire then. Now, let's be abundantly clear. Paul is the one writing this letter. And he says, I desire then. And you could read this and you could say, oh, well, these instructions are from Paul. This is Paul giving instruction here. This isn't really God giving instruction. No, 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 no. All Scripture is inspired by God. And so when we read these words, don't, don't just think, well, just, this is Paul's opinion here. No, this is God speaking through the Apostle Paul. In fact, Peter would write in his letters to the church that he views Paul's writings as Scripture. So, so he says, I desire then, and what does he desire? Well, look at it. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So there's this broad instruction, but I want us to start and look at that first part where he says, I desire then that men should pray. Now, if you know 1 Timothy, if you've been reading it, you would know that chapter 2 started with Paul giving the broad instruction to the entire church that God's people are to be praying people. Look at verse 2 of chapter, or look at verse 1 of chapter 2. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. God's people are to be praying people. That's what Paul says in chapter 2. So why does he come back and single out men and encourage men to pray? Like, wasn't that already covered in this chapter? Well, I think Paul is doing something here that you and I have experienced in life. I think that Paul knows that there's something particular to men that this instruction really gets at, and so he reemphasizes it. He's not just repeating himself for the sake of repeating himself. I think he's doing what you and I have experienced when we were growing up and we'd go on a field trip. Do you remember going on a field trip as a kid, and before you got off the bus, the teacher would come on, or before you went into the building, the teacher would get everybody together and say, all right, here's the ground rules. We're going into such and such a place. You need to stick with your buddy the whole time. Don't go to the bathroom by yourself, and don't touch anything. And then the teacher would, at that time, go, and that means you, Johnny, right? Do you remember that? And so, like, they're giving the instruction, but then they, like, single out somebody because they really want to make sure that that kid gets it. And I think that's what Paul's doing here. He's saying God's people are praying people. That means you, men. Now, why would he single out men? Why does he really want us to capture this? Well, when we talked about prayer at the beginning of chapter 2, we said that prayer is communicating with God as one with whom you have an intimate relationship. But as we pray, it's this act of worship. And as you gather to worship God through prayer, what you're doing is you're acknowledging that God exists 
and you're acknowledging your need, you're acknowledging your weakness, you're acknowledging your inability. When you go to God in prayer, when you make requests of him, it's an act of worship because you're saying, God, I need you. You are above me. I can't accomplish this without you. That's what prayer is ultimately doing for us. And so when you think about men and those things that are characteristic to men, we are called to be leaders of our home. We're called to shepherd our families. And we can understand this role, but within even our own culture, in fact, all cultures throughout time, men are typically encouraged to be independent and to be self-reliant. In fact, when you look at the indigenous peoples of Africa or South America, especially those indigenous people in their tribes, when a young man becomes of age, these cultures across the board, even on different continents, they typically have rites of passage for young men when they come of age. And those rites of passage typically involve sending a young man or a young boy out into the forest to take care, or the jungle to take care of himself. What's being communicated there? If you're a man... You need to figure it out. It's why, as men, we habitually fail to ask for directions, <laughs> right? It, there's, this, there's this idea within us that's fostered even by culture that, that we should figure things out on our own. I think some of it stems from, from not fully understanding what it means to be a leader, and that being a leader doesn't mean that you have it all figured out. But so when God comes and he says, I want men to pray, He's coming to us, and the first instruction that he's giving us is to pursue prayer. And he's calling us to pursue prayer because he knows what we need as men. We know that prayer is a gift from God in which it helps us to keep ourselves humble before him. It helps us to recognize that while we might be the heads of our home, that ultimately we, we are still under authority ourselves and that we don't have it all figured out ourselves and that we need the help of the Lord. But a man who fails to pray is a man who fails to humble himself. It's a man who fails to recognize his need. And God says, I oppose the proud, but I give what? Grace to the humble. And so when Paul comes to men, he says, listen, I know what is characteristic of men. I know what we're tempted to. And so I am calling you. Listen to me, men. God's people are praying people. That means you. Because in the role you've been given and the responsibilities that you have, it doesn't mean that you have to have it all figured out. But it does mean that you need a help. And the only one who can grant that to you is the Lord. Now, it doesn't mean that just men are the only ones that are supposed to pray, right? <laughs> it's not like ladies can be like, oh, well, guess we don't have to pray. We don't have to work. No, no, no. We're all called to this. But I think this is why he comes and he singles out men. And my hope for us as men at Valley Center Community Church, if we're a husband, if we're a father, is that we live this out faithfully. That what would be known about us is that to be a follower of Jesus Christ doesn't mean I have it all figured out. But what it does mean is that I know that my ultimate strength and power and discernment, it comes from the Lord. I'd love to challenge the men here in our church. May we be marked as men. May our children be able to say of us, I know that my dad, while he is called to lead the home and to shepherd our family, he recognizes, because I see him pray, that he needs help himself. 
and that he's dependent upon one greater than himself, and that's Jesus Christ. I think the greatest example as men that we can leave for our children is to show that to be a follower of Jesus Christ is to not pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, but to be a people who get down on our knees and come to the Lord in prayer, seeking his help. So Paul says, men, pursue prayer. But then he comes to the text and he encourages us to pursue purity. Pursue purity. Right after he says, I desire then that men should pray, he says that they should pray lifting holy hands. Now what's he talking about here? Is he saying that we should wash our hands, men? Yes, yes, you should. You should wash your hands. We should have clean hands, but that's not what he's getting at here. This isn't a text ultimately where, where Paul is so focused on the externals, but more or less what the externals say about what's inside of the heart. And this is going to be an important interpretative thing to, to grasp when we come to the passage about men, women and how they are to dress. You see, think about this. If Paul is coming here and he's wanting to talk to us about the posture of prayer, if he is coming and the, and the thing you should take away from this text is that when you pray, wherever you pray, your hand should be lifted, you're getting the wrong message from this. Paul isn't coming and laying down law here and saying every time you pray, you have to do it with lifted hands. And we know that's not the case because there are examples of prayers throughout the Bible where hands aren't lifted. There are examples where hands are lifted, and that's a great thing. But just think about this. If this were the case, it means you could never pray in the car, right? Because it says pray with lifted hands, right? So both hands are off the steering wheel, right? Jesus, take the wheel. No, that's not what he's talking about here, right? In order to obey this, you would have to have both hands lifted. So I can't pray when I'm, you know, in the car. It also means that you couldn't pray quietly when you're in a business meeting, you know? All of a sudden, you look over at Bill in the corner, and he's, and he's doing this, you know? And you're like, what is Bill doing? Is something wrong? And he's like, no, I'm praying. I have to pray with lifted hands. Is that what he's talking about here? No, he's... he's pointing us to something that actually comes from the Old Testament. The lifting of holy hands is supposed to be a symbolic gesture of how we understand our purity before the Lord. Because in the Old Testament, when people would come into the temple to worship God, there were these water basins all throughout the temple. And when you went to worship, you would wash your hands. You would cleanse yourself with water. And then as you worshipped and as you offered sacrifices, you would do it with hands that had been, well, physically cleaned. Why? Because the physical cleanliness of the hands was supposed to be a symbolic act where you're saying, I'm coming to the Lord with a pure heart. I'm coming to the Lord with a pure heart. So Paul's not concerned about the posture of prayer here. Paul is really concerned about men. Are you pursuing purity? Now, can anyone stand before God and claim that they have a purity that arises from within inside of themselves? The only way in which we can be pure and washed clean is through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? The only way that the righteous, the unrighteous can be made righteous, as Paul says to the Romans, is through the death of the righteous one, Jesus Christ, and the imputation of his righteousness. That means him giving his righteousness to us. And if you are in Jesus Christ, then you know this. If anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. So we have a purity in Christ that any one of us 
can stand before the Lord as holy and righteous. Praise the Lord for that. We have that. And Paul knows the people that he's writing to is the church. So they already know that they are pure before the Lord. So why is he giving them the exhortation to pray with, with pure hearts? It's because Paul's not telling them to pursue a righteousness on their own. What he's saying is live out. Come before the Lord in the holiness that you already have. And that living in a fallen world, if you do have sin, what he's saying here is the men of God are men who pursue purity and that they do not take for granted the righteousness of Jesus Christ, but they recognize the holiness that has been given to them through Jesus and they look to live it out. And so when you go to the Lord in prayer, it's a great opportunity to pause and to check yourself and to say, is there any sin in my life that I haven't confessed, that I haven't dealt with? Is there anything going on in my life that falls in line with 1 John chapter 1? Where in verse 7 it says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say, though, we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And if we confess our sin, then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the question that we should be asking as men is, not only are we pursuing a reliance upon the Lord demonstrated in prayer, but are we pursuing purity? Meaning that we're keeping short accounts of any sin that creeps into our lives and dealing with it and addressing with it and taking it to the Lord because he's given you the power and the ability to live out the purity that is yours. I don't think it's by accident that two of the things that Paul instructs men on have to do with the temptation for men to be self-reliant and the temptation for men to not walk in purity. Because when we look at men throughout the ages, I think these are two of the greatest temptations that men fall into. And ultimately, after he comes to us and he talks to us about prayer and he talks to us about pursuing purity, he says, listen, if you are someone who is walking in the right relationship with God, if you're someone who's taking short account of the sin in your life, if you're bringing it to the Lord, then that will manifest itself in certain behavior towards others. Because look, he says, pray, lifting holy hands, and then he says, without what? Anger or quarreling. Right here, he's calling upon the men of the church to pursue peace. Not just purity, not just prayer, but to pursue peace. If we say that we love God, if we say we're in right relationship with him, we will also have love for one another. And one of the clearest ways that you know that we're not walking in love with one another is anger and quarreling and fighting. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, when he was talking about false teachers, he says, you can spot a false teacher from a mile away. You know how? Because there's somebody who creates division. False teachers don't promote unity and peace. They promote fighting and quarreling with the people of God. And that should tip you off right away, that if somebody is, is quarreling and fighting, then they're not walking in purity, then they're not walking in right relationship with the Lord. That's a false teacher. You should avoid them. But check it in your own heart and mind. In fact, Jesus was so serious 
about a right relationship with God impacting how we engage others that he said in Matthew 5. You'll remember these words. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there. Stop your worship of God and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. Pretty powerful words, isn't it? Jesus saying, listen, take seriously your external relationships. Are you a man who fights and who quarrels and who is angry? You need to address that and bring it before the cross of Jesus Christ. It is an indication that something is off in your relationship with God. It's an indication that if you are fighting and bickering and demonstrating anger, that there is something off in your relationship with Jesus Christ. It means you're desiring something more than what has been provided for you through Jesus. You're treasuring in your heart something more than the God who has saved you and loved you. And when you recognize that and then you confess that, that is what brings about peace. Men in the church... We are to be men who pursue prayer and who pursue purity and who pursue peace. That's his instructions. Now, <laughs> does that mean that women don't have to worry about any of those things? What's the answer? No. But he's saying these are things that are going to be unique to, to men, and you need to be aware of it. I need to be aware of it and ultimately look to walk in these things. And so men of God, why can we do it? Why can we listen and hear this instruction and believe that we can actually live it out? Is it because we have the willpower? Is it because we have the strength? Or is it because we have the power of the Spirit of God that resides within us? We have His Spirit. We have His power. Men of Valley Center Community Church, let's walk in these things. But then because Paul is an equal opportunity pastor... <laughs> He turns his attention to the women in the church. And he comes and he says, I've had instructions for men from God, so too I come and I have instructions for women. And it's found in verse 9 where he says, Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, this passage is actually easy to understand if you recognized two of the contexts in which it is written. First, to recognize that like verse 8 in the instructions to men, Paul is addressing with women external behavior to ultimately get to a deeper principle that has to do with the inside of a woman and not the outside. He's using external dress as a way of giving instruction, just as he said, lift holy hands was a way of addressing men and our need. So we have to understand some of the broad principles, because if you use this passage as a passage to give you a list of requirements for how women are to dress. If we were to take this passage and to say, okay, we're going to station some guys at the back door. We're not going to let anybody in dresses like this. Like, listen, that's not what Paul is getting at here. 
And we know that he's not getting at that because think about these principles of interpretation. He says that women shouldn't dress with braided hair. They shouldn't dress with gold or, as he says here, with pearls or with costly attire. If you were to, trans, if you were to interpret this literally and say, we got to take him exactly at what he's trying to allude here, here, it means that, first off, anybody here with braided hair is sinning right now, okay? But think about it. He would also be saying that, women, you can wear your hair any other way you want. You just can't braid it. Now, if he was literally saying you can't braid your hair, if that's really what he's getting at, what, what qualifies as braided hair? Like, if you have curly hair, you're hosed because, like, your hair's crossing, right? Like, is braided hair one or two hairs crossing over each other? Is it three hairs crossing over each other? Like, what's braided hair? And then he says you can't wear gold. But what that does mean is that you can wear silver and be dripping in diamonds because he says you can't wear pearls, but you can wear diamonds all day long. Do, do you see the inconsistency there? Is he really focusing on the very specifics? Trust me, when God's Word wants to get specific on things even like dress, just look at the book of Leviticus. It gets there. The broader principle is at play here. I mean, just think about it. He throws in at the very end, or costly attire. Well, what's costly attire? Like, my pants cost $20. Was that costly? Or is $10 cost? Do you see the problem? How can you interpret this? You'd have to create all these laws, all this legalism, in order to make this work. And so you have to look back and say, no, 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 no. Paul is using the externals to get to something more deep. And we know he's talking about something in the external, or the internal rather than the external, because he says that ultimately what's to guide a woman in her dress is respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. That's how it starts. So somehow the braided hair, the gold, the pearls, and costly attire is being used by Paul to show a counterweight, if you will, to what he says respectable modesty looks like. So the best way to understand this is to understand the context of what was happening in Paul's day. You see, in Paul's day in Ephesus, which was being overseen by the Roman Empire, there was this new freedom and liberation that were happening with women in the ancient world at that time. Part of that freedom and that liberation ex extended into some, some sexual immorality and sexual promiscuity. Like sexual promiscuity was always something that was assumed to be something that was acceptable for men in the ancient world. But also women were starting to, to fall into that. Part of what was happening too was that you had in Ephesus the temple of Artemis, the goddess of fertility and of blessing, and part of the worship of Artemis in the temple involved um, prostitution. And so what we know when we look at the literature of the day and the descriptions of women's dress, and when we look at actually some of the images and representation, both in the mosaics and in the sculpture of the day, we see a style of dress that is being communicated here by the Apostle Paul. A style of dress that was culturally acceptable, but a style of dress that was culturally acceptable because it was promoting that kind of women's freedom and sexual liberation, as well as promoting the type of worship that was being done in the temple. 
And so Paul has in mind here something very specific. He knows that women who dress in the way that he's being described are in their dress saying, by dressing this way, I'm affirming and giving approval to the cultural values of that day. The cultural values being that beauty is of utmost importance. And the more beautiful a woman is, the more power that she can exert. Crazy thing, has that really changed even to this day? The, the idea that a woman's worth and value and influence is through her beauty. There's an actress who I read of not too long ago. I'm not going to use her name because I don't want to disparage her, but she had said that she spends a million dollars a year on her physical care products. I'm not talking about having like work done to herself. She's talking about the, the lotions and the things she uses for her face, for her hair, the things that she eats and drinks so that she can present herself as physically beautiful as possible. And so Paul is coming and he's saying, listen, that's not what the woman of God is supposed to be about. That's not something that we should strive for. In fact, his first instruction to women here is simply this. Seek to exalt Christ and not your external beauty. For the woman of God, you are freed from the values of the world that say that influence and power and worth come from your external beauty. Do not promote those kinds of things. That's not your aim. That's not your focus. Because God's word says whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the what? The glory of God. The glory of God is, the exaltation of Christ is, to be the ultimate desire of a woman as she considers her dress. So what's going on in the heart is what Paul is saying. What is driving your dress? This is not an instruction about the precise nature of one dress, but of one's heart. A number of years back, I got a phone call from my brother, Aaron, who's a pastor. He preached a few weeks ago. What was that last week? I can't remember. No, it was two weeks ago. <clears throat> and he had gone to a pastor's conference in Kentucky, and, uh, and I knew that he had been going to it, and he called me up, and he said, uh, I just had the most fascinating conversation. I knew he had been at a pastor's conference. He says, I just had the most fascinating conversation with the former Victoria's Secret model. I said, excuse me? Could you talk to my, to my Goodyear? What? I thought you were at a pastor's conference. He's like, I was. He said, when I went to sit down at the, at the conference, I was sitting down, and then this young couple comes and sits next to me. And I, I meet the young woman. Her name is Kylie Bassetti. And she and her husband were coming to the conference because he was becoming a, a pastor. He said, we, we got into conversation in, in kind of the breakouts, and she shared with me her story. In 2009, she was on the CBS TV show. Um, I can't remember the exact name, but it was like the next Victoria's Secret model. She won the competition. And so amongst all these women, she was on national television, and, and she won the competition to become the next Victoria's Secret model. And so for the next few years of her life, she lived in that world. She had desired, she told my brother from an early age, like that was really her aim, was to become a model. And the pinnacle, really, from a standpoint of, of popularity and ultimately from wealth, was to become a Victoria's Secret model. And so she reached the pinnacle. She said, though, when she became a Christian, she began to realize something. This does not match up. I'm out there promoting my body and my looks 
and she became convicted. And at the age of 21, as she was hitting the, the peak of her career, she gave it all up. She left being a Victoria's Secret model because she said that profession, that thing that I was in, was ultimately not about the exaltation of Christ, but it was about external beauty. And so she gave it up. Since then, she's written a book, and, and she has made it her aim to ultimately speak to, to women in particular about these things. And so it makes sense when Paul says in here, ultimately, women, this is how you are to dress, and here's how you're not to dress. What he's trying to do is to get us to ask some questions of our hearts and minds. See, we might be prone to ask the question, what can I wear today that will make me look good to the people around me? But Paul says, no, the first question that we should be asking is, how can I dress and what can I do today that will draw the most attention to the glory of my God? It's not about my dress attracting others to me, but instead making sure that what I wear, and even as I come to worship, it doesn't distract people from looking to their God. A heart issue is, do I need to exalt myself today? Am I looking for the affirmations of my physical beauty or am I looking to make much of God? Now, it doesn't mean that we don't care about caring for ourselves physically because we have been made in the image of God. We should take care of ourselves. It also doesn't mean that a woman shouldn't care about beauty or a man shouldn't care about beauty in general because when you look at the book of Revelation, we know that God cares about beauty. He even says that when the day comes and the church, the glorified church, is presented to Jesus Christ, it will be as a beautiful bride dressed for her husband. And so I think that one of the things that we can even consider is there's an importance of even as we see the Christ being presented to Christ in all of its beauty, so too a man and a woman in their relationship should be concerned, I believe, with how they are taking care of themselves, not for the sake of the others, but ultimately for the sake of one another. I want to take care of myself for Hannah. Hannah wants to take care of herself for me because that is, there is a, a union there. There's a beauty in that. But, but we must ask, am I looking to exalt external beauty or am I looking to exalt Christ? And that was something that the women dressing in Ephesus in that day, through their dress, he says, when you're dressing in that way, you're distracting from God. You're bringing attraction to yourself. So don't look to exalt your external beauty but then he also says, exalt Christ, not your wealth or status. It wasn't just that dressing in this way was to show off one's beauty and to make one attractive to oneself. The braided hair with specifically the, the gold and the pearls, we have images from that time period where literally a woman's hair was covered in such a, a headdress that was filled with rubies and pearls and other precious stones so when you looked at her, that was a status symbol. That was a sign of the woman's wealth. It was a sign of her status in society. And so Paul is coming and saying, we don't care about those things. I don't dress to make much of myself or to make much of my wealth or my status. Our hearts as the people of God should not just be simply concerned with, am I distracting from God's glory through what I'm wearing? But it should also be, am I looking to make much of what God has given me? Am I looking to show 
that off. This is something that we're to reject. We don't need to go around through what we wear, through what we own, or even, well, let me give it to men, what we drive as a way of displaying our status and wealth. Because last time I checked, we are all citizens of heaven. We have all inherited the same riches. And so Paul says, why are you concerned about showing off things in this side of heaven? Unless we think that Paul's not concerned with the heart, look at how he does for women what he did for men. He says, what's your greatest concern ultimately? It's exalting Christ through good works. That's what should be on display. Not showing off your beauty or your sexuality, not showing off your wealth or status, but let your externals be good works. Literally, in the Greek, it's the translation is acts of obedience. And so, so it's like, let people see your commitment to, to Christ, to the way that you treat others, just as men shouldn't fight and quarrel, so too women. Let the world see you as servants. Let deeds trump decoration, is a way of thinking about it. Let our deeds trump decoration. Faith without works is what? Dead. And so Paul is sitting at that here. That if I profess godliness, it will be on display. If I say that I love God, just as a man will seek to live at peace with others and not fight and quarrel, so to a woman who says, I truly love God and have been transformed by him, it will manifest itself in service, in humility, in those kinds of works that the world will look at and be able to say, my goodness, now there's beauty on display because of the character of that person in handling that situation in the way that they serve others. Valley Center Community Church, this is the instructions for men. This is the instructions for women. Ultimately, if we stand here today and we worship God and we say he alone is to be exalted above all things, then Paul says you'll see it, men, and how you pray and how you pursue purity and how you pursue peace. And women, if God is at the center of your lives, if he is most precious to you because of who he is and what he's done, it will manifest itself and that you will seek to exalt Christ and not your external beauty. You will seek to exalt Christ, not your wealth or your status, and you will seek to exalt Christ through the good works that you do to the praise and glory of his name. The glorious news is that as we are called to these things and instructed in these things, the same power, Paul said to the church in Ephesus when he wrote his own letter to them, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the same power that indwells us so we can go and we can live in these ways. Praise the Lord for that. Amen. And may we as a church be all about affirming and encouraging each other in these things for our good and the praise of his name. Let's pray together. Lord, your word is so good. Your design is perfect. There's no error in it. You know us full well as men. You know us full well as women. You know our struggles. And, it, and what you do is you speak to us in those things and you give us passages like this that draw our minds and our attentions into the importance of considering, Lord, how it is we are living in this world that you don't just call us to consider these things, but you show us how through these instructions we are built up and we are helped. 
We as men get to combat the temptation to self-reliance and pride by praying that we can, Lord, live in purity because, Lord, we're mindful of the righteousness of Christ. That, Lord, for, for women, Lord, that, that they can, can be freed from the cultural expectations and standards of beauty and of power and instead be able to say, my beauty comes from the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I just need to put him on display. It's not about living for myself, but it's living for him. That, Lord, would you help us as a church to ultimately be all about affirming and encouraging one another, not in external beauty or wealth, but in encouraging one another as the body of Christ when we see each other living in these ways. And that this would be done for the praise and glory of your name. We ask it through Christ our Savior. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.